0: Talking Books, on new song 106 to 108.
1: I think for a lot of writers, especially with Williams, you know, he said this very telling thing. For love, I make characters. And what is extraordinary about Williams as a writer is how deeply he lived within his fictions. That in a sense, he lived more vividly inside his imaginary world than he did in the real world. Many poets and people do that. Uh, And the contradiction is that they can handle and control their imaginary world in a way that they can't their the real world which is which doesn't bend to their will in the same way
0: what is the price of fame and is music replacing religion as the new focus for public devotion hello how are you and you're very welcome to talking books i'm susan cahill it's great to have your company this bank holiday sunday weekend well in tonight's show i'm replaying you the best of entertainment and culture books from over the year this evening we're going to get up close and personal with two legends, one a dramatist, the other a music label. Award-winning biographer, novelist and theatre critic John Lair talks theatrical realism, artistic reputation and the morally ambiguous world of Tennessee Williams.
1: Williams, who wanted a relationship, he, he wanted it and talked about it, but he didn't work for it. He expected it. And when you are famous, it changes because you are famous. You can't have intimacy without equality. And with fame, there is no possibility of equality. Merlot was always the passenger and Williams is always the ticket to ride. And that was always the case. And so was interesting to me was how early in their relationship it became fraught and difficult and how insensitive Williams was to the actual spiritual predicament of Merlot.
0: And musician, writer and cultural critic Richard Havers talks me through the arbiter of cool, Blue Note Records and his spiritual journey in jazz. First up, let's take to the stage and meet with the highly strung and wonderfully complex Tennessee Williams. On the 31st of March, 1945, at the Playhouse Theatre on 48th Street, the curtain rose of the opening night of the Glass Menagerie. Tennessee Williams, the show's 34-year-old playwright, sat hunched in an aisle seat, looking, according to one paper, like a farm boy in his Sunday best. The Broadway premiere, which had been heading for disaster, close to an astonishing 24 curtain calls and became an instant sellout. Tennessee Williams was born in Mississippi in 1911. A lifelong depressive, Tennessee craved literary recognition and intense human bonds. John Lar is a British-based American theatre critic, novelist and biographer. Since 1992, he has been the senior drama critic for The New Yorker magazine. His notable reads include Backstage with Barry Humphreys, Light Fantastic, Adventures in Theatre, Academy. Facebook on Harold Pinter's The Homecoming, Acting Out America, Essays on Modern Theatre, Coward the Playwright, Prick Up Your Ears, Sinatra, The Artist and Man and Hot to Trot. Well John's latest biography, Tennessee Williams' Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh, has just been published by Bloomsbury and is without doubt a must read for all theatre goers. It's absorbing, riveting. I loved it. Now, while John set out to tell the story of these gigantic plays, he has also done a terrific job of charting the evolution of Tennessee Williams' shifting internal world and how the plays reflected them. It's quite a feat of literary detective work. I particularly enjoyed reading about Williams' stormy creative collaborations with Turkish-American director Elia Kazan and learning about Kazan's enormous influence on the structure, quality and creative direction of Williams' plays throughout the 1950s. What I found really surprising was Williams' inability to acknowledge the dimensions of that help. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk with John from his home in London. We talked about the man who transformed American theatre and his titanic ego. I put to him one of Tennessee Williams' famous throwaway comments. I set out to tell the truth, but sometimes the truth is shocking. I asked John, "Does he agree with that statement?" Yes, I
1: think the truth is shocking. I think the tr- <laughs> I think because people's capacity for self-deception and malevolence are, is infinite, so it leads it leads to some extraordinary, uh, melodramatic and outrageous behavior. You know, I mean, in William's case, it's hard to imagine someone trying to run him down in in the sand dunes of Provincetown or people trying to manipulate his estate or, you know, just outrageous behavior that affects lives in various strange ways. I mean, if Maria St. Just, for instance, had had any understanding of how uh, reputations were made or lost, she wouldn't have put the constraints on the uh, university that controlled his archives so that no one for a decade could quote or even Xerox any of his papers. And so therefore, the discussion about Tennessee Williams after he died in 1983 just flatlined. It seriously hurt his reputation, although she was, in principle, as she thought, doing him a favour, I suppose. So these kind of things are truths that are, you know, are really shocking uh, when you see the, this sort of misguidedness of, of uh, individual actions.
0: They had a quite a close correspondence with each other for over about 35 years. I know that. She brought out Five O'Clock Angel, his letters, at one stage
1: did that was her collection of of letters but it's a very odd book i mean it, it, i reviewed it for the new yorker i mean it's it, there're just gross factual errors in it i mean she first of all she writes about herself uh, as the narrator of this collection, it, 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 as uh, Maria Saint Just uses the I form, the first person, and she writes about herself as a historical figure, and she uses the third person. So she's a sort of ventriloquist in the, in the in the in the letters, and it's full of the most outrageous claims. I mean, the most outrageous for me is the claim that she did get Tennessee to get her to play. Blanche in an off-Broadway production of Streetcar Named Desire, and she quotes Brooks Atkinson's review, saying that her performance is one of the most nuanced in recent memory, and something like that. And I went back and looked at the actual review. It was a complete lie. Atkinson claimed that she was just inadequate in the role. She was the model for Maggie the Cat for some reason. Maggie the Cat, in Williams's play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, tells an outrageous Porky that she is pregnant with Brick's child, and just to get her to claim her inheritance. And Maria St. Just, who was a sort of very minor actress, but ambitious, just lied to claim this inheritance, and there it is, enshrined in a book. But there's a lot that's not true, and one of the interesting things, because I knew Maria, and I mean, the letters were her prized possession, and when she died, and since she died, those letters cannot be found. Now it's my guess, but it's an educated guess that she burnt them for the simple reason that she probably tampered with them in order to make her relationship to Tennessee all the more legendary i mean the the things that I, I catalog in in the biography she claims when she met the great meeting of Tennessee was at a party and She claims that all the people that were at the party uh, that were there, which were luminaries of the English stage, they were nowhere near there. The Oliviers were in Australia. Noel Coward was in New York. She just is a fabulist. And the book is uh, full of these kind of confabulations, if that's a word she was never Tennessee Williams' executor. She claimed that for herself. And they, they, the estate let her, she, she was in charge of Rose. And she was only in charge of Rose until Rose died. And so she didn't have legal claim really to control his papers. It was a combination of her assertion and the laissez-faire attitude of Williams' estate. It's quite complicated, but very interesting.
0: You describe him in the book as the most autobiographical of American mm-hmm. playwrights. Correct. and. To me, he's clearly a tormented genius and a master playwright. When you're bringing that an understanding to writing a book, how did you balance understanding his mental vulnerabilities to his clear creative genius? They're two different factors in his life, really, aren't they? And how did they tally at different times?
1: Well, that's a good question. First of all. What Williams said when he began in 1939 was he he wanted to make a portrait of his internal life, and you know a portrait of 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 his spirit, and that spirit, of course, like all our spirits, changes with our with life experience, and with the publication in about 2004 of Williams's diaries and notebooks and the publication a very excellent publication of two volumes of his letters which go up to 1957 I had access to a quarter century of unpublished uh, letters. You could use those as a kind of global positioning device to see what he was thinking at the time and, and feeling at the time he was writing if you add to that the letters to other crucial collaborators like Ilya Kazan, his major director, and and Audrey Wood, his agent for a long period of his life, also to whom I had unique access, you get a very very clear picture of his of what was on his mind and the turbulence of his mind, which shifted as he went from being an unknown writer, uh, full of ambition and frustration to being this colossal success and on a first-name basis with the world and how success then changed his heart so you move through various stages and the plays there's a synergy between them because the plays are autobiographical not in terms of historical fact but in terms of emotional content so as he's trying to work out his problems which he says the play he says he writes these plays represent what I was feeling at the time of the writing so as as the, the the nature of the debate changes, you see uh, if you if you read carefully uh, the plays and the the letters and the life, you see the sort of moral spiritual evolution or atrophy, depending on your point of view, of his heart. I mean, he said because he he was so emotional and wrote out of feeling, he didn't have theses uh, so much as trying to chart emotional landscapes that you you see him. He said that he had to sort of keep his heart open. And one of the things that happens with fame and the famous is that as their power and uh, in life grows, very often their hearts uh, become ossified because there's not equality in relationships. And as his heart ossified through his own promiscuity, which he acknowledges in some of the plays, and through his own callousness, and he had to sort of lacerate his heart uh, in a way to keep it open. What you see is a sort of change in his plays from in the mid-50s on. His drink and drugs take him to the precipice, emotional precipice, that he can sort of report on. What happens psychologically and dangerously is that in order to break his kind of writing block, he destroys himself for meaning. And at a certain point, you sort of devour yourself and and he did and wrote about that that's in a sense what suddenly last summer was about
0: can I ask you though, when we look at his career and obviously he'd, he suddenly became very, very famous, at very, very fast and as you said, access to all the stars. But we see a rise in more dysfunctional temperament or an existing temperament that was dysfunctional and you see a huge amount of guilt, a huge amount of shame and massive paranoia and vanity. And then when you look at the plays he was writing and the people who were supporting him, certainly his relationship with Frank Merlot, his partner, it all becomes very morally, very ambiguous,
1: Yes, it does. Why it's so interesting is it unwittingly charts the dilemma of celebrity because Merlot was a, a good man, a, a strong fellow, greatly liked by everyone, and he ran sort of social interference for Williams, who was shy and difficult in in public situations, although full of fun. But Merlot organized Williams and was caring and loyal and had made great connection with people, whereas Williams didn't. But the difficulty is that Williams, who wanted a relationship, he he wanted it and talked about it, but he didn't work for it. He expected it. And when you are famous, it changes because you are famous. You can't have intimacy without equality. And with fame, there is no possibility of equality. Merlot was always the passenger, and Williams is always the ticket to ride, and that was always the case. And so what's, what's interesting to me was how early in their relationship it became fraught and difficult, and how insensitive Williams was to the actual spiritual predicament of Merlot and he
0: became dreadfully lonely then when Merlot died even though there his destructive relationship with him he descended into 10 years of depression and even more intense drinking so ultimately he paid the bitter price.
1: Yes, well, I think part of that drinking and part of that depression was the guilt at realisation of what he had and didn't honour.
0: Can I ask you about his affinity with the female psyche? Because he's written some mesmerising roles for women, which really cut to the heart of the... Female imagination, the emotional side of a woman, like he really calls it so well. If you compare him to the likes of Eugene O'Neill or Edward Albee or Arthur Miller, he writes women. He writes women the best. They don't touch him.
1: Not, Not at all. I mean, first of all, the central psychic thing to understand about Williams was that he was a hysteric. And one of the things about hysterics if you study the behavior of hysterics is that they're very porous. They absorb the narratives of other people. They feel feel it. I mean, he became a hysteric at his mother's knee, so to speak, and his own terror, his own loneliness, his own fragility is in all those women's characters. He as he frequently said, he is Blanche DuBois. He is Maggie the Cat in the sense that he he can feel a female issue there. He can feel the desperation and the longing to be held, essentially, or loved. So, you know, he can find a way of being both the fragile, lonely person looking for a cleft in the rock to hide in, and he can also be the predatory male who is out looking for, you know, trade, Uh, So he has both sides in him and he has access to both sides and one of the sort of startling things in studying him over time is that how incredibly intuitive he was about people and yet about himself how sort of dopey in some ways he was.
0: It's amazing when you think that he had such an insight into humanity, into women, into all the chaos. Yes, within all of that, how he lived his own life, it doesn't really make sense. It's it's quite a contradiction really, isn't it?
1: Well, it is, but I think it's not if you're a writer. I think for a lot of writers, especially with Williams, you know, he said this very telling thing, for love I make characters. And what is extraordinary about Williams as a writer is how deeply he lived within his fictions. That in a sense, he lived more vividly inside his imaginary world than he did in the real world. Many poets and people do that. Uh, And the contradiction is that they can handle and control their imaginary world in a way that they can't their the real world which is which doesn't bend to their will in the same way
0: so maybe he understood his life through his writing
1: Uh, entirely but then he said he that is that is how he made meaning
0: but then that would suggest that possibly he preferred his life and his writing to maybe people
1: yes that's exactly what it means for Love I Make Characters, he was much more at home in, in, a, in a world in which he was omnipotent than in a world in which he was impotent. You know, I mean, Tennessee could not get himself to the bus stop. He had to, he had to be organized. People had to carry his bags, his money. He was in, he had to, they had to pack his bags for him. He was, in many ways, infantilized and infantile. He had this huge genius which the world wanted and it was what he could do. He couldn't really, he couldn't really function in a work-a-day world. He wasn't normal.
0: His relationships, though, with his mother, from reading Between the Lines in your book, Edwina seemed to have been not just a basket case, but a dreadfully manipulating woman, a very cold woman. And then when we look at Rose, his sister, who ended up having a botched lobotomy and the guilt and the fear that Tennessee had. It's very understandable that he ended up addicted to prescription drugs and alcohol and lived such a chaotic life when his foundations in life were very, very rocky.
1: I I think that that's correct. And I I think that what, in the usual narrative, I mean, one of the things that I enjoy doing is changing the story. The usual narrative, which is taken, people assume that Edwina is, is the woman in Glass Menagerie, but Amanda in Glass Menagerie is the musical version of... Edwina, I mean, they and C.C., The father, Cornelius, is seen as the heavy, the hard drinking, cruel. They were equally violent, but in different ways. The father was abusive to Williams, and and angry. And Edwina was emotionally uh, was equally furious. They were at war. The parents and the children's were sort of startled witnesses at this bloody feud which never ended and it was a it was crazy making and it did drive their the children in one case with Rose's case mad and it in a sense Williams is quite borderline and the third child who was the most normal ran for president of the United States so he wasn't didn't have all his marbles either and the thing that's important here is that although Edwina worried about her children and Worrying about your children is not the same thing as seeing your children and understanding who they are. And Edwinna never saw, as, and this is dramatized in Glass Menagerie, Williams was never seen for who he was. There were enormous secrets in the family. The, the father never t- explained his own very sad childhood to the family. So his anger, there was no source for it. They didn't understand why he was angry. Edwinna never admitted to the children uh, she she always put on a false face for the children, and she says in her own book, which is called Remember Me to Tom, you know, we all of us are, have to be actors to survive. And the beloved grandfather, who was the sort of major male figure in Williams' life and the person he loved and left all his money to, I mean, he all his papers to, um, and money to the grandfather's university, Swanee, he turned out to be gay, and he when he was blackmailed by people he gave up the small pension he had to the blackmailers and when his wife asked him what had happened he said if you ever ask me that question again I will leave this house and never